Our sermon text is John 5, verses 1 through 15. You can follow along on the screen. I'm going to read it. Or even better, if you've got a Bible with you or a phone and you can pull up John 5, 1 through 15, it's going to help if you can see it for yourself. This is God's word, John 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there's in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just prayed that your faithfulness is our resting place. The reason we can be at rest, at peace in our souls is because you don't change. It's because you don't change. You give us your word so that we can know you. You give us your promises so that we can trust you through them. And you don't ever change. You don't change your mind. You don't change your heart. What you say is as firm as any ground could possibly be under our feet. So I pray, oh Lord, would you help us to believe that this morning and through the Holy Spirit to live our lives on your word. I pray that we would hear what you have to say through John 5, that we would hear Jesus' words to this man, sin no more. And Lord, you would stir in us a desire to share your holiness. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Jesus doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to sin, and he doesn't want you to go to hell. And the question we're going to wrestle with today is how do those two things fit together? Jesus doesn't want you to sin, and he doesn't want you to go to hell. He's going to heal a man, we just read about it, who can't walk in order to teach him to run from sin and hell. And that's what Jesus intends for us. 
That's the point of this sermon. Jesus wants us to run from sin and run from hell. That's what he wants for this man. It's more important than our health. On it hangs all our future happiness. So let's see what these verses have to say to us. We're going to do two things. We're just going to walk through the story. That's the first thing we're going to do. And then we're going to wrestle theologically, hopefully personally, with what it means for Jesus to instruct this man, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. We've got to wrestle with that. How does that fit with the rest of the scripture? How does that fit with the way we think about our relationship to God and to sin and to hell? So that's what we're going to do. Let's start by looking at the story. In Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda. The sick are gathered to it in order to be healed. So look at your Bible. Look at verse 4. How many of you have a verse 4 in your Bible? Does anyone? Anyone have a verse 4? Okay, we've got a couple verse 4s. Old copies of the Bible, we call them manuscripts, they were copied and distributed by scribes. So people would take the Bible. By the way, we have so many copies of the Bible, it outstrips any ancient manuscript by far, by far. So scribes would take the scripture, they would copy them, and then their copies would get copied, and they'd get copied so that more scripture was passing around. Now, it appears that what happened was a scribe was copying this text, and he made a note in his text. Now, you didn't waste parchment or your animal skin or whatever you were writing on. You didn't waste it. You crammed everything in there. And it appears that a scribe was making an explanatory note. Because you read, okay, why are these people gathered around this pool? Verse 7, the man's waiting for the water to be stirred up. What's going on? The scribe, he says, okay, well, here's what's going on. An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So he writes that note in, and then when someone takes his copy of the scripture, they think, oh, that note was there to begin with. So they copy the note, and then that gets copied and copied and copied. And so if you have a King James version of the Bible or something that is taken from the King James version of the Bible, you're going to have a verse 4. But we've discovered earlier manuscripts, and they don't have verse 4 in them. They don't have verse 4 there. So if you've got the ESV, NIV, you don't have verse 4. It's not included because it's not in the very oldest manuscripts. Now, it's probably true that whoever was gathered around this pool really thought that an angel of the Lord is coming and stirring up the water and whoever can get in first is going to be healed of their diseases. And that's why the scribe wrote the note that he did. See that in verse 7. The man that we meet, he complains that he can't get into the water first when it's stirred. So even though verse 4 was not in the original, 
the original manuscripts, it's probably what people believed. Angel of the Lord stirring up water. If you can get in first, you're going to be healed of your disease. So that's what's going on. These sick people are gathered around the pool. They're seeking a healing. They want to get in the water, but this man can't. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. So Jesus knows. He just sees this man. He knows his plight. He knows the pain this man has been through because he's the son of God. God the son. He has that kind of knowledge. He asked this man, do you want to be healed? Which certainly has to be one of this man's deepest longings. It has to be. He hasn't been able to move for 38 years to be well, to be able to walk. Jesus is touching on surely what must be what this man wants more than anything else. The man tells Jesus he doesn't have anyone to help him get into the water. So not only is he sick, he's alone. This man doesn't have anyone to help him. But here comes the kindness and power of Jesus. He tells the man, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. It's unprovoked. The man doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. The text says nothing about the man's faith. You know, last week we focused on the fact that the man whose son was healed believed. That was a significant part of the story. This text says nothing about belief. This man's faith is not a part of the story. In fact, I think this man's faith is doubtful. When the Pharisees come to him and tell him he's breaking the law, they say, who told you you could take your mat? And he says, I don't know who it was. And then Jesus comes and finds him and speaks to him. Verse 15 tells us, what did the man do? He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Just think about that. You're in your home country Somebody heals you, the, the police are upset about it, they want to know who did it, and you say, I don't know who it was. And then you find out who it was, and you go straight to the police. That's not a good look for this man. This story is not about this man's worthiness to be healed. It's not a, this is how you can get your own healing kind of passage. That's not what it's about. This text is about grace. Jesus is gracious, unprovoked. He sees this man. He finds him out. He heals him. That's really gracious. And it's powerful. I know there are lots of doctors in this room. I can guarantee that none of you have been sitting with a patient and, and simply by speaking, their body gets put back together. That's what happens to this man. Whatever is dysfunctional about this man's body is put back together at the sound of Jesus' voice. That's power. He's gracious, he's powerful, and he still is. Now, the graciousness and power of Jesus is contrasted immediately in our text with the unbelief and selfishness of the Pharisees. This man's been lying on a mat for 38 years, and the Pharisees don't care. 
They don't care. In fact, when they question this man about breaking the law, they don't even care that he was unable to move for 38 years and now he's walking around. That's completely irrelevant to them. Look at this. Look at the end of verse 9 through verse 12. The text tells us that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now notice, they don't even acknowledge the fact that this man was healed. They don't care. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? So the Pharisees are concerned about the fact that this man is breaking the Sabbath. But they're not doing it because they want to honor God. That's what we're going to see. It looks very religious. These guys are keeping the rules They don't care about God's honor. That's not what this is about. God did want his people to rest on the Sabbath. So in the Old Covenant, he commanded them not to work on the Sabbath, and that was Saturday for the Jews. He wanted them to take a day off so that they could be refreshed and to remind them that God was the one who provided for them. If everyone around you is working seven days a week trying to get just enough food and money to get by, and you take a day off because your God tells you to rest, everyone around you is going, what? You're losing one-seventh of your time. You could be getting more money, more produce for your family. It's a sign saying, I trust my God to take care of me. He says he would, and he will. Now, Jeremiah 17, 21 God tells the people to stop carrying things in and out of the gates. And what he means is, listen, it's a Sabbath day, and your commerce, your trade is going on just like it always does. You completely ignore the Sabbath. You're just going ahead with your work. You're gathering so that you can trade and so that you can sell. The Pharisees, however, they took this up, and they made extra rules extra rules that are not in the Bible, extra rules that God did not command. They said, well, not just that. If you carry one thing from one house to another, that's work, and it's breaking the Sabbath. God never said that. It's not what God intended through the Sabbath. God intended that people would stop their occupations, their way of making a living and trust in him instead and rest. God doesn't say you can't lift something from one place to another. Here's the irony. The Pharisees look like they care about the law, but they have zero compassion and zero love for this man. And the very heart of God's law is to love. These men have none of it. Jesus is loving this man. He healed a man who couldn't walk for 38 years, and they don't care. All they care is that their man-made rule is being broken. They don't care about God's honor. They don't care about other people. They don't have God's heart while they are pretending to enforce God's law. So let this be a warning to us. There is a kind of fake holiness that looks good to others but is wicked on the inside. 
real holiness, real holiness, which by that I mean living the way God wants us to live, is not opposed to love. I mean, that would be the stereotype in entertainment today. Holy people are stiff and sticklers and rude, and loving people don't care about the rules. They're just kind to people. And that's not true. Holiness is not opposed to love. All of our holiness ought to be a loving holiness. And all of our love ought to be a holy love. I don't know where you fall on on that spectrum, but they're both true. Living the way God says is loving, but he wants you to have a heart of love behind it. And when you're loving people, caring for them, he wants you to do it his way. Because Jesus can see hearts, he knows that's not these Pharisees. They're acting like they care about the rules. They don't care about God, and they don't care about other people. And because Jesus can see through them, he's setting them up. He's setting them up. Now, next week, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about this fact. But notice, Jesus heals the man. He doesn't just say, get up. He says, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. Jesus is intentionally going after the Pharisees with this. I mean, the next half of the verse is going to say, it was the Sabbath. And Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. And he commands this man to grab his bed and walk through town. He's attacking a dead religion. And by dead religion, I mean a religion that cares about enforcing good behavior on the outside, but cannot forgive your sins or change your heart which is every religion but this one. There is only one way to be forgiven, truly cleansed of what you've done wrong, and truly changed on the inside. That's what Jesus has come to bring us. You can see in the concern the Pharisees have about this man, they want their man-made rules kept. Put the mat down, man. Put it down. That's all they care about. But Jesus cares for this man, his body, healing him, and more significantly, his soul. So now we're moving to the second section because Jesus is going to find this man. And he's not just going to address his body, he's going to address his heart. And we're going to wrestle with his instruction to this man's heart. We've got to wrestle with it. Jesus is going to instruct this man to sin no more. So... The Pharisees questioned this man about who it was who told him to take up his bed and walk. Verse 12, they asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who'd been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is the second time Jesus has found this man out unprovoked. And Jesus said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Some sickness is because of personal sin. Some sickness is because of your 
particular personal sin. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth is gathered to take the Lord's Supper. They're eating the Lord's Supper, but they're not loving each other. And Paul says, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have even died. James 5, verses 15 through 16, lets us know that sometimes our sicknesses are connected to our sin. But not all suffering or sickness is a direct result of our personal sin. We live in a fallen world. Suffering is now because of the sin of Adam and Eve woven into all of our lives, every single one of us, suffering and sickness. We're going to see in chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind, and the disciples want to know, did this guy sin or did his parents sin so that he was cursed and born blind? Jesus said it wasn't this man's sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. It was so that God might be glorified in him. Sometimes people are sick so that God can display his glory. Now, I read some commentators this week say that because Jesus tells this man, see that you sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, they'd say, okay, well, it's clear then that this man's paralysis or illness is a result of his sin. But I don't know that we can say that much. Jesus doesn't say, sin no more because the last 38 years were because of your sin. He doesn't say that. He says, stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you than 38 years of not being able to move. What's worse than 38 years of not being able to move? Hell is. The judgment of God is. Jesus is saying, you, listen, man, you went through 38 years without being able to walk, and there was no one to help you, but I'm here to tell you there's something worse than that. The judgment is worse than that. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus lives in reality. He lives in reality, which is, if a man who couldn't walk for 38 years is healed and then goes to hell, his life is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. The healing of this man's body is just a first step. That's why Jesus finds him out again. This is just step one of what Jesus is out to do. He's after something bigger for this man. He's after this man's soul, his everlasting, immortal soul. I hope you see the comparison that's in this text. Losing your soul is worse Far worse than being paralyzed and unable to move for 38 years. Do you live in that kind of reality? Oh, I hope you do. This doesn't mean we don't care for people's physical needs. <laughs> Jesus is the perfect example, isn't he? You've got to get people out from under the rubble in Turkey as fast as you can. 
But if they're rescued from the rubble and they live 40, 50, 60 years and go to hell, that story is a tragedy. That's the reality Jesus lives in. I hope you live in that reality. Oh, God, make us live in that reality. Jesus finds the man, and he commands him to stop sinning. Sin no more. So that's the command. And then there's a warning. That nothing worse may happen to you. Now, here's what we have to work through. What's the logic behind that sentence? Sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. Does Jesus believe that this man can be saved by his works? Just clean yourself up and you won't go to hell. If you don't clean yourself up, you will go to hell. Now, we should note that when Jesus says sin no more here, Jesus is not assuming that it's possible to never sin again. What he means is, stop living in sin. Don't keep living in your sin. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is telling this man to stop living in sin so that he doesn't go to hell. And we're asking this question here because we know we're saved by grace and not by works. Ephesians 2.8. And here Jesus is telling this man, you need to stop sinning so that you don't go to hell. So what's the connection between stopping your life of sin and not going to hell? That's what we're wrestling with. We're about to do some theology. We're going to do some theology here. I hope you're ready for that. You have to do theology. If you hear the word theology and you think, Ugh, gross. I hate theology. I just want to read my Bible. You've got to do theology. You have to. You have to read a passage in light of the rest of Scripture. If you forget everything you read the day before, the years before, every time you approach the Scripture, you're going to come to wrong conclusions. You've got to fit it together. We're saved by grace, not by works. So what does it mean when Jesus says, stop sinning so that you don't go to hell? Let's do some theology. So the Bible tells us that in some way, you and I are going to be judged according to whether you did good or whether you did evil. Listen to these verses. This first one's Romans 2, 6 through 10, if you want to see it yourself. So this is the premise we're starting with. In some way, you personally will be judged according to whether you did good or did evil. So Romans 2, 6 through 10. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. John 5, 
verses 28 through 29. So same chapter. It might be on the same page. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. He's talking about himself, the Son of Man. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is not hypothetical. There will be people, real people, who have done good. And they will be resurrected to live forever with God. And there will be those who have done evil, and they will be resurrected only to be judged in hell. So those who have done good are resurrected to life. Here's the problem. No one can do good. That's Romans 3.12. No one can do good. This is a big problem. Those who do good are going to heaven. Those who do evil are going to hell. And we know, if you have any self-knowledge, you know this. You can't do good. You cannot stop living in sin, and you cannot do any good unless Jesus changes your heart. Our gospel does promise that, by the way. Jesus can change the very core of who you are. He has to change the core of who you are. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, if you've been around since chapter 3, he told this religious leader, listen, man, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit makes you new. Those who do good will go to life forever. Those who do evil, to death. But we can't do good unless Jesus changes us. Now, we, we can stop here. There's more to say, and we will say it. But if Jesus changes you, and you live a life for his glory, his honor, the fame of God, who gets the credit for that? He does. So even in your obedience from a changed heart, you don't get the credit. You're not earning anything. It's grace. It's grace. Believers, Jesus changes hearts. He really does. You have power from the Holy Spirit to say no to sin that you didn't have before you trusted him. And he will help you if you trust him. Unbelievers, if you know yourself enough to know that you can't stop, you can't stop, you can't stop your sin, you say you're going to stop, and three days later you want it again, there is power for change in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. You can get a big list of rules. It's not going to change who you are. But Jesus will. He can and he will. So, those who do good will be resurrected to life. Those who do evil, resurrected to judgment. You can't do good unless you've been changed by Jesus. And here's the next step. You can't be changed unless you've been forgiven 
first. This is Jeremiah 31. You can turn there if you want, but this is from the Old Testament. It's the text where God is promising that when the Messiah comes, he's not just going to give them a new book of the law outside of them. He's going to change their hearts. It's the promise of the new covenant that Jesus is going to bring. So this is Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read 33 through 34, and I want you to see how transformation and forgiveness are related in this passage. So this is the promise of what Jesus is doing now, what God is doing now through Jesus. Verse 33, Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. I'm here to change hearts. That's the work God is after, to change people from the inside. That's what we just talked about. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For. That word could be because, that's what the word for means, because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The logic of that paragraph is crucial. Jeremiah 31 is saying the reason that God can put his Holy Spirit inside of you, the reason he can change your heart, The reason the Holy Spirit can change your desires so that you love God and righteousness and other people is because God is first going to forgive your sins. Do you see that? Verse 34. All this heart change is going to happen because I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. The foundation for change is forgiveness. It's not the other way around. He doesn't forgive you because you changed yourself first. Oh, this is what we try to do, isn't it? I'm going to make myself right, and then God's going to have to accept me, forgive me. This text is saying the opposite. The ground that your change is built on is forgiveness first. First, that's the good news we preach. Jesus wants you to be changed. He wants you to know the joy of righteousness, the happiness of holiness, the pleasure of walking in step with him through the Spirit. But he doesn't put his Spirit inside you until he forgives you first. And that's what the crucifixion is about. Jesus is being punished in your place. He's hanging on a cross to be punished for ungodly people like us. So that if while we are still ungodly, we look to him as dying in our place and then rising from the grave, conquering death, being shown to be righteous, if we trust that, we're forgiven. And his righteousness is counted to us 
while we are ungodly. I hope you hear the good news in that. If you're ungodly, don't clean yourself up. Look to him. And he'll forgive you. He'll declare you righteous. And then he'll change you. You will have the power of God at work in you so that by trusting this book, by trusting the God who reveals himself through this book, you can say yes to righteousness and no to sin. You won't ever do it perfectly, but you will truly be empowered to do it. That's true of everyone who's forgiven by grace. Everyone who's forgiven by grace is empowered for change by grace. That's why the Bible can say that those who do good are the ones who go to heaven and those who do evil are the ones who go to hell. Because those who do good are always those who have had their sins forgiven first. And they really are empowered for good. Do you see that this is a chain that can't be broken? It can't be broken. Those who are forgiven will live righteously, not perfectly. And those who are living righteously will go to heaven because they've been forgiven. And they have the power of the Spirit. Which means holiness, we're still doing theology here. Holiness is necessary proof that you really are saved. Holiness is necessary proof that you really are saved. Many people come to the UAE, they have training, they have education, they have experience to be teachers and doctors, but the UAE is not going to let them work here if they just say, hey, I've got education, training experience to be a doctor. They've got to show a certificate, don't they? A certificate that says you've been, maybe multiple certificates with multiple stamps. Yes, I've been trained. Yes, I've been educated. And here's the certificate. It's necessary proof for this country that you have the training necessary to be a doctor or a teacher. That's what your holiness is. It's not why God saves you. It's the certification of your salvation. It's necessary. If you've been changed, it's because you've been forgiven. If you haven't been changed, it's because you haven't. But your holiness is not just a certificate. It's not just some piece of paper that God gives you. I don't really care if you're holy or not. I just want you to certify that you've been forgiven. No, holiness is the reason Jesus died for you. So here's another metaphor, another example. If you go to jail because you owe 100 million dirhams, and I pay your 100 million dirhams, I'm not paying your 100 million dirhams so that you can get a certificate that says I paid your 100 million dirhams. I'm paying your debt because I want you to be free. The same is true of salvation. Jesus paid what you owed, not so that you could be holy, 
only as a proof that you're saved. He paid what you owed so that you could get out of the prison of sin. That's why he did it. So that you could be set free from the power of sin. Walking around free from the jail is proof that you've been forgiven. But it's also the reason you were forgiven. So that you could be free. That's what Christ has done. He wants you to be free. So if you trust in Jesus Christ's death, I'm summarizing here. If you trust in his death and resurrection in your place while you're ungodly, you'll be forgiven. And once you're forgiven, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be changed, which means everyone who's been forgiven will be changed, made holy. And if you're holy, you'll be in heaven. Heaven is for the holiness. Let me say that again. Heaven is for the holy. Your holiness is not what saves you, but it's why you were saved. It's why Jesus tells this man to sin no more. He really wants it for this man. Did you see that? That's really what Jesus wants for him. Jesus is not like, I healed the guy. I need to come up with a rule to give him. Jesus really wants that for this man. He doesn't want him to be in the power of sin. He wants him to be free. It's what he wants for you and me. If this man is willing to follow Jesus and learn from him, he'll see that Jesus will forgive his sins, change him, and make him one of the righteous who are fitted to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wants that for you. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your forgiveness, that's the step for you now. If you know you're ungodly and you've not received Jesus by faith, that's step one for you. That's what he wants for you right now, for you to be forgiven. And if you believe, even in your seat, there's no ritual you have to do. If you believe, you'll be forgiven and you'll be changed. Christians, Jesus wants you to seek to live righteously. He wants you to kill your sin. He wants you to do whatever it takes. This is, again, Jesus is not just making up something for this man to do. It's what he wants for him. It's what he wants for you. He wants you to kill your sin, put it to death, whatever it takes. He wants you to know that your resistance against sin is evidence of your salvation, and it's why he forgives you, so that you would know the joy and freedom that comes in walking in holiness. So let's take Jesus' command and warning seriously. Just take it seriously. We've done our theologizing. Now take the command and the warning seriously. If we make peace with sin, refusing to fight against it, if we live our lives content with our certain pet sins in our hearts, our minds, our living, then Jesus has a warning for us. If we don't repent and turn from our sins, we will face wrath. Far worse than 38 years of paralysis alone. 
death without end. So hear his warning. But remember that Jesus is compassionate. He's the one that finds this man out, isn't he? Twice. Not once, but twice. He's come to free you from the penalty of sin. He's come to free you from the guilt of sin to forgive you. And he's come to free you from the power of sin. If you don't know how, I mean, just a little side note. If you're sitting there thinking, I am a Christian. I trust in Jesus to forgive my sins. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know how to stop sinning. Come talk to us, and we'll show you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will help you trust this word over against what you feel, what others may tell you, and he'll kill your sin. He will. And it's for those who are forgiven. Oh, blessed Jesus, who dies for our sins to take our guilt and to change us. You won't do it perfectly, but you must fight for it. Sin no more. It's the certification of your salvation. It's what Jesus died to free you from. And as Romans 6.22 says, as you are set free from sin, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, who in heaven do we have besides you? And on earth, there's nothing we desire but you. Our heart, our flesh may fail. You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. I pray that you would fill this city with those who trust Jesus Christ. You died in the place of ungodly sinners so that our debt could be paid and paid in full. There's nothing we can add to it. Not if we lived for 100,000 years could we add one bit to the work you've done to free us and forgive us. But would you make us a people who are transformed and through the power of the Holy Spirit do good to those around us who live righteously, who love you with all our heart, and care for those you've placed in our path. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.